Welcome to Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. I'm super excited that you are listening today. I've got a really wonderful conversation to share with you that I had with Tomislav English very recently. Um, Before I get to it, just um, three announcements. The first is that on Sunday this week, At 2 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to be teaching uh, an online class for Our Breath Collective. It's a 75-minute class. It's 20 bucks, and you can sign up at OurBreathCollective.com under their workshops page. Um, Also, if you are in the Boulder, Colorado area, every Thursday... At 10.30 a.m., I am teaching a class at uh, Block 1750. Um, If you want to sign up for class there, you can just go to block1750.com, and under their class schedule, you should find my class uh, right there. It's called Play to Play. So uh, yeah, if you're in the area, I would love to see you there. Last one, um, if you are picking up what I'm putting down and you're interested in... um, you know, jumping in on classes and and being a part of uh, the conversation. You can join Movement Brooklyn online. I teach a weekly class there. We put all the class recordings up. Um, All the the videos that I I shot through the the first seven months of the lockdown are up there. And then every week we're just adding new things, new ideas based around uh, the monthly focus. Um, and this month we're working on, on ground movement. So movement sequences, improvisation, and then also kind of, you know, asking some questions about how to integrate these types of movements into, um, something more open, a more open setting. So that's what we're working on. Um, if that's, if you're interested, you can just go to movementbrooklyn.com or members.movementbrooklyn.com. Those are my announcements. So let's get to uh, my conversation with Tomislav. Um, Like I said, this was really uh, a a wonderful conversation. We we met for the first time here uh, over Zoom, Um, but, you know, a number of people had reached out to me asking if I could uh, get in touch with him for a conversation, and he he generously accepted the invitation. Um, Just to give a little bit of background, Tomislav is a former professional dancer and performer who since 2014 has been a part of the development of a collective called Ferris Animi Terranova, which is a, a movement research collective based in Europe. Ferris Animi's mission statement is to share and disseminate the most up-to-date research from a host of scientific and artistic disciplines including neuroscience, evolutionary physiology, biomechanics, psychology, and philosophy in a relevant and accessible way to enrich the practices of their students and collaborators. Um, He comes from a rich uh, educational and research background um, ranging from the arts to science, and um, I'll put all his uh, his educational background into the into the show notes. Um, but uh, currently, he's working on a, a master's of science degree. Um, yeah, 
this is really a, a, a wonderful conversation. I did not want it to end. Um, so now I'm looking forward to an opportunity to traveling to Europe to practice with him, chat in person, uh, and and connect with uh, some of the others in his uh, collective. So with all that said, let's not waste any time. Here it is, my conversation with Tomislav English. It makes me think a lot about the power and the lack of power in our in in whatever language we fall into in our society or in our culture because i you know i've read some of these books about indigenous cultures and indigenous language and and eastern cultures and eastern language and the language really does dictate how we start to navigate through the world whether as um in a simple coming off what we were just saying whether it's as an individual or as in a collective just as like the lens that's put over everything yeah and you know i really am i really think there's benefit in understanding um and trying to dissolve the the boundaries of self a little bit without you know opening your mind so much that your brain falls out which we see a lot of these days as well we're, we're you know we've grown up in a culture that's been one way for a long time so to gently ease ourselves into new ways of thinking or approaching it because what we can see is people quite violently swing to the other side and that um, deconstruction of beliefs and um, let's say perception of reality is something to deconstruct gently because the ultimate question at the core of everything is why why do things exist why you know um, the existential question but if your culture has given an answer for that throughout your childhood and as your race as a human, saying, yeah, the answer is God or immaculate conception of you know, creation, conception, etc., um, being in the in the image of God. Then if you were to, if that's inherent in your understanding and subconscious, almost subliminal in your understanding of reality, then if you take that away and you're not ready to realize that there's not an answer yet, or let's say no proof of any answer, but that life might be finding your own answer or accepting that there's things that we don't know and maybe we'll never know um, then that can be quite uh, destabilizing often uh, you know you see it a lot and i think it's happening a lot now there's a lot of people who are um, brought up in a western western environment with christianity and the let's say metaphysical answers that christianity offers inherent in their understanding of reality and their perception of reality and then they re renounce the religion because there's it's scientifically disproven and then find themselves often vulnerable to accepting the next thing that comes along as um a appropriate um, replacement if you will because the brain has been conditioned to attach um answers to a belief system and so you strip one away but there's still that space right you're already you you still have like the same software uploaded yeah you know we're, we're just changing we're just looking to change the operating system but you've already been conditioned into like one way of like navigating yeah a lovely metaphor and uh what's different is to let's say and um, dissolve in the idea of not knowing accept that there's things that we really can't 
speculate. And, it, and in my opinion, I know arrogance is a strong word, but it's arrogant of us to um, think that we're anywhere close to scratching the surface. And it's just a mystery. And, and that can be destabilizing because it's, it, it feeds into our fear of not knowing what happens when we die. And we can look at evolution and, and the, the sort of pillars of evolution and, and life in general as uh, stay alive, survive and multiply, right? So we have this inherent desire to survive. So death is a huge fear. And this, this fear is what we have to confront if we are to, um, uh, it's what we have to accept. It's what we have to live with, not find an answer that dissolves the fear or allows us to put the fear aside. We just have to dissolve in the fear. And that's really difficult. It makes you very vulnerable. Um, but ultimately, if you can, um, realize that, that it's okay to be scared and that it's, it doesn't mean you can't be so happy and live a really wonderful life full of ups and downs. Um, then that acceptance of not knowing, the acceptance of not having to know, uh, is what I believe can can bring a lot more softness and potentially happiness yeah, to human experience. But it's also very arrogant of me to expect yeah. that to work when we're such complex animals. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I find myself kind of thinking about it quite a bit because, you know, humans have, uh, you, you use the word first, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and use arrogance as well. But the idea that, you know, in, in a pretty short amount of time where we've really been deep in the world of science and investigation and things that in that amount of time we could figure out and know better than billions of years of evolution because, you know, even at, it sounds to me like the highest levels of science, like there's still a, a degree of tinkering and trial and error that's happening even in like really fine-tuned ways to help navigate this world. And that's how we came to be where we're at over billions of years of evolution. So like I said, there's a certain arrogance that often arises that like as humans, we know better in our short amount of time of like studying science when billions of years have kind of created this deeply complex system that I often feel like we've only scratched like the surface layer of. Yeah, and you know, that's the nature of science, which is what's, which is why I love science and, and you know, a scientist and uh, on that process of becoming someone who does scientific experiments and and you know the journey to becoming a scientist is the journey to realizing that the fact doesn't exist but there's but there's just really good theories mm -hmm. right so there's no right or wrong it's just good gravity is a theory and by the way we're still trying to figure it out <laughs> you know the two basis uh theories with regards to um existence general relativity quantum mechanics don't add up so we're, you know we're, we're just as you say scratching the surface now does that mean that we can sort of denounce science as just like sometimes oh science is just another religion etc cetera, etc cetera. um what i believe is the difference between science and other belief systems is that science is seeking to disprove itself when you start an experiment a scientific experiment you start with a null hypothesis not a hypothesis, a null hypothesis. And the way that you find an outcome is by rejecting the null hypothesis. We know it's not this. So we believe that it could be the other options, right? So 
uh, there's no other belief system which is actively seeking to disprove itself. Uh, there's no, imagine, you know, imagine if so, you know, uh, John said this. So no, he didn't. This person said this. No, 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 he didn't say that. He said that it wouldn't get anywhere. And of course it happens within other, other religions, but no one would encourage that, that, uh, that um, let's say that deconstruction of every layer of the system as it emerges. But what we see within sort of the capacity for things to be peer reviewed is that firstly, you need to get other people to sort of validate your work. And then, then the second part of it is that then you will, you want people to, to criticize and challenge your work. You want people to seek alternate hypotheses. You want people to look at other ways. In the past, because of let's say a hangover of, of um, religious approach to science, and we're still you know, battling that because of it's, religion is so inherent in the way that we think, the language you use, et cetera. Um, then what can happen is with, let's say, it's difficult, I don't want to say it in a nice way. Mm. Um. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 see, I see the thinking, like, I mean, I watched this, um, this film on people who believe that the earth is flat, for instance. And I see this, this juxtaposition that you're kind of describing where even though they're talking about something and they think they're talking about it in a, in the, in a, in a scientific way, they're coming at it like not with the intention of disproving, they're coming at it with the intention of trying to prove everything. Yeah. And anything so, that, and, and, and anything that dis, disproves the hypothesis is thrown out. Yeah. And I think it's the same in religions. It's like, oh, well, I don't know. Jesus walked on water and there's a million and one scientific reasons or things that have popped up to, to disprove it. And they're like, well, throw that away because here's the two things that we have that actually prove it. So we're going to ride with that. Right. Which we know is confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's tough with science because in the past, this is kind of what I was trying to get at. I didn't want to say it because it gives science a bit of a bad rep. I don't want to contribute to any sort of denial of science. Yeah. But in the past, because science has been built with, from within religious cultures like that's where it its point of origin has been from within religious cultures mm -hmm. um, what we can see is that there is there has been in the past an attempt to somehow prove religion through science and now potentially science is at the point where it's more open to proving and disproving many different things and not not saying that we were trying to disprove religion um, but saying that if people want to use science to try and prove religion or aspects of religion, which maybe are, you know, we've, we've taken big steps away from maybe believing in things such as people walking on water or turning water into wine, etc. Um, more towards sort of like the, the metaphor of religion or the sort of metaphysical aspects of spirituality, which is, which is great. There's room for that in science for people to, to look into those things and to, to study things with more elements of ineffability, uncertainty, things that we can't explain in our limited language. But in general, and what I believe is the best practice is this approach of just seeking to, uh, seeking to disprove uh, itself continually, seeking to look at theory and say, where does this make sense? Where doesn't it make sense? seeking to encourage each other to challenge and deconstruct the things that, uh, that, that are presented 
the, the theories which are put forward to help us to explain reality. And I think a lot of people get so attached to their beliefs because it helps them to avoid this fear we were speaking about. Um, they get attached to their beliefs because that's the answer, right? And then that fear and that attachment means that we are very, um, we find it very difficult to have that challenge. And that's not science. Science is the welcoming of challenge. It's the welcoming of dissemination and, and deconstruction of, uh, of theory to try and find more rounded ones. Um, you know, the best example is that at the base of science are two contradicting theories, general relativity, quantum mechanics. So we want to find a way that they fit together. We can't necessarily do it by continuing on the path we're on. We might have to take a few steps back, break some things down, find something that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. You know, let's see. Who knows? <laughs> well, then, you know, you know way more than I do, but even just the thing that makes us this unique and special creature on the planet, this this consciousness is still a mystery, right? Yeah, so, you know, it's we're really trying to trying to put a finger on consciousness and where it exists how to measure it um when we have nothing really beautiful series really beautiful series um you know it's it's you know for me i don't want the the fact that we're not close to finding it to to add to supernatural um aspects of trying to make sense of it because the, for me i don't think that they're particularly helpful to the to the let's say the future of culture and society but what do i know they really could be and you know it's all about dosage and balance anyway a little bit's great too much but uh understanding consciousness i mean you know it's for me what, what time is it here 10 to 6 i can't talk about it this time of the day <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> I'm with you. Mystery. It's a beautiful mystery, but but for me, like when we get to that that point with um, you know, uh, speculation, there's a point for me because I enjoy, I enjoy, and I sometimes have to really practice enjoying dissolving in uncertainty, mm-hmm. and sometimes saying less, in order to you know maybe elicit change or elicit acceptance in in uh, if i'm viewing myself as part of a wider community a species rather than sort of my individual need so for my belief to be shared amongst everyone or my individual need for uh, the way that i think to be the way that everyone thinks mm-hmm. or to my individual need to find an answer why do we exist mm-hmm. what's going to happen when i die <laughs> was it all for nothing <laughs> yeah 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 a lot of time in that rabbit hole yeah uh, you know if it brings you pleasure then wonderful for me yeah. you know it's uh, it's it's taxing it re- requires a lot of energy mm-hmm. um I, I enjoy it um for the sake of trying to see where that that uh, line of inquiry can bring benefit to mm-hmm. my life and the life of the people around me that i care about and potentially having a sense of myself as responsible for a, a, a you know a wider sphere of society and community um but but you know the question doesn't keep me up at night let's put it that way <laughs> yeah well, it's it kind can, of it can. 
it can be a question that does, right? It can be a question that keeps people up at night. Um, but uh, that's where, for me, the acceptance of not knowing is really important. I find it's a, it, it, maybe that's part of the part of the thing of like the Western world too, is like there's this um, kind of like tragic, potentially unacceptance of uncertainty and change. And a lot of things are kind of built around maintenance and status quo and maybe to some degree, maybe a lot of degree actually, sanitization. Um, and yeah, I find that, that that is unfortunate. Yeah, you know, how can we, um, how can we look to, to, again, you know, challenge the perspectives that, um, that force us to be protective, territorial, you know, the, the survival techniques, but how necessary, what, what utility do they have in a modern society mm -hmm. when, when they're so easily weaponized? Right. Which I think we're seeing a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Weaponization of territorial defensiveness, xenophobia, it's all, it all has evolutionary benefit in the, in the right context. Mm -hmm. Do we live in a, a society and a culture now where there's utility for that? And if not, how can we soften something that's so ingrained in our physiology, in our endocrine system, the fight or flight response, you know, this, these, these chemicals that come coursing out, so right. to, uh, you know, we, we lose all reasoning and rationale in favor of emotional response. Uh, to any stressor and for whatever reason we find the challenging of our beliefs a stressor that makes us turn into animal you know we are of course animal but uh, to use the metaphor it's more animal fight flight freeze cortisol uh, norepinephrine adrenaline uh, i'm fighting to survive you're not fighting to survive someone's just challenged your beliefs Right. It's like we have this nervous system that has not caught up to like where we're at technologically and, and societally. It's like this nervous system is like, I don't know how far back, but it's, it's not where we're at now. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's adapting. We're still evolving, but we are in such a period of dramatic change that this adaptation is causing chaos. It's causing chaos. And, you know, it's also really funny in many ways to, to look at us as, when you sort of deconstruct our, our religious beliefs of being built in God's image, and then we look at ourselves as, wow, what the, f you know, am I allowed to swear? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, let it out. <laughs> okay, well, now I'm trying not to swear too much. <laughs> Reputation for swearing too much. Um, this, you know, this species that's developed this capacity to, to be self-reflective and to dress ourselves and, I imagine us. I imagine watching a, 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 a um, what's his name, the, the great uh, documentary commentator, old dude. Oh, I don't know. I want to say Atkinson, but it's not. Uh, Tina, what's the name of the guy who nar narrates Planet Earth? The guy who narrates Planet Earth. Yeah, thank you, David Attenborough. Mm. You know, he makes these amazing nature series and he's got this old voice. Oh, now you see the wild gibbous biggest doing this thing in the tree. I imagine like a series look examining humans in that way. And if we were able to like take ourselves away from being human and look at it from an outside lens and just how hilarious it would be to view all these structures and societal things that we've built, all these beliefs, all these rituals from 
in the same fascination that we look at other animals with and just be blown away, blown away by A, the complexity of it and the inherent evolutionary beauty of finding such efficiency for survival in a complex demanding environment such as this planet. Simultaneously, how silly it is. <laughs> yeah. How ridiculous, how ridiculous some of the things that we do are. Uh, and you know, you can put some of the things in both boxes and you can put some of the things very firmly in, in one box or the other. And yeah. I've, I've imagined something similar when, you know, people talk about like aliens visiting earth or something. And I'm like, hey, maybe they've come and they've just looked at us and been like, they are, they're too silly for like where, where we're at at the moment. I mean, you know, it, it really, <laughs> <laughs> another rabbit hole, it really, uh, you know, to, to, to imagine how also if there was complex life, let's say life with the capacity to be self-aware, which is kind of the distinction that we make between humans and not all other animals, but many other animals. If there was complex life with the capacity to be self-aware, what form would that take? Because it would be formed from the planet on which it was evolved, right? And so the unique, uh, uh, ingredients of that environment would form whatever species would evolve within that environment. So let's say it's a dark planet, so that sight doesn't exist. But our entire cognitive process is ba based around our primary sense of sight, right? I say, imagine something, imagine space. You see the image, imagine, imagine it's inherent in the way that we think is image of space, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe they evolve based on sound. So maybe they're these huge ears. Yeah. No. But and, but that but that even changes like you know continent to continent and country to country and culture to culture. I've my understanding like I forget what it is. Like in the West, we have this like highly, as you're describing, super visual culture. Not that we don't have it everywhere else because everyone uses their senses. But in some cultures, it's like they have this real uh, oratory culture, mm -hmm. and it asks more of of their their ears and listening and then and and then that is fr that frames how you start to navigate the world as well and it's almost like you and i have this conversation but i might be more visual and you might be more auditory and we don't even have realized that but we're interacting in this way that is coming from we we almost might be seeing each other in like funhouse mirrors Absolutely. And the, one of the be beautiful mysteries of existence for me is, is not, not being able to truly understand how other people perceive reality. Mm -hmm. you know, there's this, this common thing of like, how do I know that what I see as red is what you see as red? Because we both call that thing red. But if it's different for both of us, we'll never know because our only commonality will be that it's there and it's red. But my red might be your blue, for example. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's nice to think about with animals as well. You know, dogs have 17 times more neurons for processing smell than humans, but very, very poor eyesight by comparison. So a dog's experience of the world is the primary sense. And I say primary with regards to, let's say the processing, the, the amount of neurons recruited for processing that sense in the brain. Our primary sense is sight. There are many more neurons recruited for processing image than any other sense. And dog's primary sense is smell. So, so really a dog is see you know we say how do you see the world because because sight is you know it really filters into these little idiosyncrasies in our language 
So right. it's really, how does a dog smell the world? You know? Yeah. That's their primary sense. So for them, smelling is much more rich. And for us, our, our olfactory bulbs are relatively uh, small so that we don't get that amount of um, complexity. Which we've got. Still, there's complexity, but not, not at a similar level to our sight. A dog can smell, you know, who's been in the area for the last 48 hours. It can smell like 12 miles away. It's really, really unbelievable the level of complexity with regards to the processing of, of smell information. Do you think in, and maybe the answer is probably pretty straightforward, but I feel like we are really desensitizing and weakening many of our senses, like with, with each passing day, it's like we add layers and layers between us and our like sensory experiences. So even like maybe our strongest sense, you're talking about like our eyes continue to get be, we ask less and less of them, whether it's just because we're inside and, and staring at screens and computers all the time, as opposed to all the different colors and depth that come from like having to interact and navigate in the world. I would argue that in fact, we're using our eyes and our hands, which are let's say the most sensitive motor uh, capability. Let's say if we think of uh, input output. So output is motor, how we move and interact. And then the input is the sensory response and they, they loop. So the input stimulates the output, output, input, et cetera, et cetera. So most sensitive sensory eyes, most sensitive motor hands. Yeah. We interact and we receive because we're so uh, fantastically capable at adapting our environment to suit, um, to, to allow us to have lower, um, needs lower energy needs what we do is we adapt our entire environment around our eyes and our hands look at our tools look at the tool that we're interacting with now eyes and hands right right look at the environment around your your room around your kitchen books books eyes and hands reading eyes and before hands now still a little bit hands but not so much mm. in your kitchen eyes and hands all of the tool all of our environment has been adapted right has been adapted uh, in order to, to facilitate the use of these senses these two senses now we understand that the brain is uh, plastic and that it reorganizes based around its use but the space in the brain is finite it's like very expensive real estate so if for example you look at the brain of a blind person the areas of the brain responsible for processing sight will normally be taken over uh, by other senses, right? Because it's not being used, use it or lose it. We have this use it or lose it brain. Mm. Uh, the areas of the brain, like the, the back, the occipital lobe, often there'll be some sound, some touch. Now it's representative of how much you use those senses. So let's say we looked, there's a strip across the middle of the brain. I, I don't have my teaching tools. I have a couple of really great, uh, <laughs> it's like a fake brain I can take and show exactly. And then I have a homunculus model. Um, we've got this strip across the top where we see most people, this is responsible for sensory. You see it lighting up with electrical activity when they're stimulated sensorily by touch or whatever. Now, if you look at the area of the brain responsible, we talk about these sort of brain maps, you know, this topographic brain map of different areas of the body housed in this motor cortex. We look at the area responsible for processing the fingertips. We'll see that in many blind people who read Braille, they will employ many, many times more neurons for the sensitivity of the end of the index finger. 
than the other fingers. So that means they have more processing capacity for touch at the end of their index finger in comparison to their other fingers. Why? Because they've been using that finger to read the braille and the repetition creates an awareness of the needs for survival. And then the brain responds by allowing more neurons to be employed. And again, remember it's finite amount of neurons. It's not unlimited. So it can come at a cost. But what we see is this bigger representation. So I would say in general, if we looked at the sensory brain and the motor brain now, what we would see, and I'll send you an image. Um, yeah, please do. Because uh, we have this, uh, this representation, which is really beautiful. And I, I imagine many of you have seen it before, but it's uh, very, very cool. I think this is a sensory homunculus figure. So this is regards to like sen touch sensation. It's nude, so <laughs> maybe a little not safe for work one. Uh, how can I? see if this works. So this is a scale representation. I'll send you a link. Tell you what, if you just Google sensory homunculus and paste the spelling there. And on the images, you'll find a lot of images of this model. This is one of our teaching tools that we use a lot. All right. So this is a scale representation for the amount of neurons employed by the brain for touch in different areas of the body. So what you see is these huge hands, huge lips, huge tongue, mm -hmm. face quite large, but other areas of the body relatively very, very small. Mm -hmm. Image of a human that's morphed to this distorted, huge, huge hands, bigger than the rest of the body put together. Mm -hmm. and lips, face. So what this represents is that in our brain, we have so many neurons responsible for receiving touch sensation in the hands and in the face. Very, very few for, for touch sensitivity in the arms, torso, uh, legs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The motor homunculus, so sensitivity for movement, fine motorics looks very similar, except there's even less um, representation in the genitalia where obviously we don't have motor capacity, but we do mm -hmm. have quite high sensory um, sensory perception so if we have a plastic brain that changes based around its exposure to its environment would this homunculus would this figure look different for someone that lived in a culture where they use their feet a lot more where they are barefoot a lot more often interacting with the world through the feet with different surfaces different textures different temperatures what about people who you know if you imagine this model for someone who is blind then we know that index finger would be even larger. Uh, if you imagine it for someone who has no hands, maybe they're driving with their feet. Yeah, so then we imagine the representation in the feet would be much larger. So if we can look at this figure, not as a definite, but as something which is moldable based around our exposure to our environment, then I would argue that because our environments are so geared towards sight and hand touch that we're overloading sight and hand touch not overloading as in it's going to bring us necessarily health problems although 
I'll talk about vision in a moment and why so many people need glasses based on this. Um, but what we what we can imagine is that we're getting super sensitive hands, super sensitive eyes, and our other senses and other areas of our body are potentially being understimulated, and um, not based on a survive like needs for survival, but maybe based around other potential theoretical health indicators, and maybe also if we're looking at um, craft within the human body, then we're really looking at trying to develop that sensitivity to allow us to be more skilled at whatever our movement craft is. So like, you know, if you're, stri- if you're a kickboxer, you need to have really great spatial and sensory res- perception from your, from your feet and from your shins. And mm-hmm. um, if you are a dancer, you really need whole body sensory and motor sensitivity. You need to have as much sensitivity in your spine as you do in your, you know, your, your thighs everywhere. And that's what they will train. So I would be really interested to sort of map the brains of different people from different cultures, from different crafts, to see how their homunculus um, would differ. Um, in society in general, I, we, we really uh, try and encourage people to uh, find ways to interact with their environment that aren't just eye and hand reliant, because our tools are so fantastic at facilitating those senses. You wake up in the night, it's dark, what do you do? You use your, your sense of hearing or your sense of touch in your feet to feel your way? No, you turn on the light. Uh, you know, you need to... Uh, we, we love to ask our students to think about if you couldn't do something with your hands, what would you use next? Because there's so much possibility for sensitization and there are some practices where they're like, today we're going to meditate on sensitizing the top of your left uh, clavicle for two hours. It's like, yeah, you could, but is it necessary? So we try to prioritize other areas of the body that we maybe would be using more often if we were in a slightly more demanding environment, like living in a, in a wild environment, let's say. So right. Like you- I, as you as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, like, well, as you were describing like a dancer, or you were as you were describing um, uh, a kickboxer, I thought to myself, well, well, what if you did this with somebody who was a hunter, right? Someone who actually who hunted, but like with a bow, I would even go so far as to say or something like, or a spear. What does that start to look like when you're just sitting out in the woods for days, hours, you know, and you're smelling and hearing and you're touching and feeling all the different things to try to like get all the different information. Right. And, you know, tracking, um, understanding the weather. Mm -hmm. People, uh, whenever I walk on a street, I immediately can taste how much pollution there is in the air. And people sometimes look at me as though I'm strange or as though I'm making it up, but I can taste the air quality, right? I know I can. And for me, it's really distinct. I can, I can taste if I'm in the car, I, I, I'll be driving with my partner and there's the button to make the air circulate just inside the car or come in from outside the car. I can tell whether it's on or off based on where we're driving. And like if we pull up to the traffic light and it's letting air in from outside, I can tell immediately. I imagine most people can if they take time to try and sensitize to it, right? But so you're learning about your environment through your sense of taste. I can smell the particles in the air, which by the way, are super harmful. Uh, I can taste them. Mm-hmm. You can taste the air in your tongue. And these are skills which we're so out of touch with. Skills to do with like, you know, being able to understand whether it's going to rain based on the, smell of the of the wind right 
being able to, to understand the humidity in the air and then the effect that the humidity will have on animal behavior by, the, the, by tasting the humidity in the air. It, it seems almost superhero skill. Mm-hmm. We have that capacity. But these are the things you, you like I read about in like, you know, when I read books on indigenous culture and, and these are the things like this is that this is that way of navigating when you are um, truly collaborating with the environment as opposed to kind of like being hidden away from it. Right. But what's difficult is that it, it evolves in response. It evolves within a lifetime, let's say, mm-hmm. in response to needs. So if the needs aren't there, you won't develop the skill. Mm. If you have uh, alternate solutions, then those alternate solutions will be what you gravitate towards. If you're working intuitively or, or um, unconsciously, you'll always choose the path of least, you'll always choose the, the most easy way. If that means getting out your phone and looking at Google Maps, it means getting your phone and looking at Google Maps. So it takes us going against the efficiency of our evolution to restrict ourselves from the solutions to find other solutions but ultimately if we can do that we end up with more choice and if if I was working with a student I would say what we want to facilitate for you in all areas of your craft is choice we want you to have many different options we want that you wake up in the night and you can't turn on the light do you have the sensitivity in your feet to find your way do you have memory skills of knowing where things are in the pitch black that you know when to duck so you don't hit your head, that you know exactly where the wall is, that you know exactly, um, you know, that we want this choice and this this capacity to be, um, to make adaptations based around the needs of your environment. The, the tools that we've created to facilitate survival, which are so brilliant. I mean, we have these super long life expectancies and we live in real comfort. Um, uh, uh, restricting our, our, our skillfulness in, in complex and different environments and we rely upon the skill of, of sight and, and touch Enjoy. i i i don't know if you've listened to this guy daniel schmachtenberger he's often on podcasts or he's i don't know what he would identify as, as some sort of just modern day thinker um but he often uses the the comparison between complicated and complex right and an example would be something like, I don't know, a house versus a tree, right? A house is complicated, a tree is complex, right? The, the forest burns down, it'll grow back. The house burns down, it won't grow back. Um, and, and listening to you speak, it's like, I, I, I hear this like, this interested, interest in, in, in approaching things in re- with respect to their complexity as opposed to creating complicated solutions to complex systems. Right, and for me, the distinction, the clear distinction between complicated and complex is many of the complicated things are human built, mm-hmm. right? Because what we're doing is we're problem solving based on, on you know, relatively linear distinctions. Um, a lot of straight lines, a lot of very oversimplified building uh, building techniques, which are fantastic, but um, have space to improve. And what we see very often in human innovation now is what's called biomimicry, which is where we're looking to understand the complexity of, let's say, how a tree grows in order to try and build buildings or uh, develop infrastructure that has... Um, capacity to last you know 
much longer. And a really good example is like earthquake architecture and buildings and, and earthquake zones. They build them rigid because, you know, we were building in straight lines and with rigidity. And we saw that the, the, the structural instability when it was uh, shook was very, very poor. And so then we look at trees and how trees are able to, to sustain. Yeah. Um, and they look at the, some of the interestingly older building techniques of Japanese uh, pagodas where they had a sliding structures on each floor, which was just built like that out of, out of um, the, 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 the techniques of the, the era, not necessarily as far as we we're aware with the view to protecting them from earthquakes. Mm. But now we see, oh, wow, this capacity to adapt, which we see in many living things, many living sort of uh, solid structures such as trees uh, allowed the, the, these buildings which were built 4,000 years ago to survive an earthquake when buildings that we built 20 years ago were, were having structural um, their structural integrity damaged. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more of this biomimicry of trying to trying to translate the complexity. Uh, so what was the, the terms you used? The, the, uh, complicated versus complex. Right, trying to translate the complexity into our innovation, where um, maybe we've had all these complicated ways of building, of um, innovating, which we can still break down to mathematics of like, you know, as simple as like one plus one equals two. When I feel like we see it in like um, the movement space more and more, right? Um, for a long time and in, in, in a lot of ways, there's like a, you know, complicated movement solutions to our complex organisms, right? And I don't know, right before we got on the call, I, I, I listened to a video of you doing kind of like a testimonial for um, the work that Yosef and Linda do with Fighting Monkey. Oh, cool. And you kept saying how you, you appreciated the kind of complexity of, of their approach. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think that that is a, is a, is a rich place that I think kind of gets lost again in like kind of the human linear thinking of like, well, how do we systematize and package this thing? When, when we do that, we just create complicated things. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, for me as a teacher, my, um, my, I feel like the most important thing that I have to try and keep responsibility of is maintaining that complexity because the easiest way to maximize exposure for a practice is to simplify it into ingredients right to simplify it into ingredients so that it becomes one plus one equals two the complexity and the reality and also understanding that i don't have uh, any of the answers and instead maybe creating an environment where people are inspired to find their own answers that for me is the role of the teacher not of having the answers of creating an environment where people can find their own because i know as much as anyone else no more and no less so what we will often see for the sake of ease of getting as much exposure or maybe maybe good success is uh, breaking down uh, training into ingredients. And it has its place. It has its place. If you want to learn how to do a particular skill, breaking it down into its ingredients is really, really great. You will learn a complicated skill. But will you learn how to move with individual complexity? And individual is, for me, the really, really key word. Uh, for me, the easiest way to explain this is, is as such. Very often, I work with young movers, um, and immediately I know who they trained with. 
like that. And I don't, I'm not talking about just people from the sort of movement culture. I'm talking about dancers. I'm talking about, and, and me as a student, I was exactly the same. People could look at me and they say, okay, a little bit of capoeira in there. He's been working with Eddie Valdo. He's working with Anton Lachki. He's working with David Zambrano. And for people in the movement culture, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see you train with this person. I can see you train with this person. I can see you train with that person. Yeah, and it's happening. And it's happening also with Fighting Monkey. You start to recognize some of the coordinations. You start to recognize some of these things. It's totally normal. However, for me, that's complicated. And I don't, I'm not saying it's the intention of the teacher or the teachers to encourage their students to move in the way that they're sharing or let's say to manifest the tools that they're sharing to understand the complexity of movement into a style of movement does that make sense yeah because mm -hmm. what's happening is this the 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 exercises get interpreted as a style and the right. style infiltrates its way into the the complexity and often minimizes the complexity of the individual right people get almost get so they get caught up on the content as opposed to the message. Right. So we, so we talk in, in, our, in our teaching as a collective, we talk about the principles. And we're constantly trying to find ways to deconstruct what people recognize about the practice with regards to exercises, which are the container to, to look at what's inside, which is the principles. And every teacher struggles with this of how to keep people from... Uh, translate, um, I'm looking for the right word, let's say translating the exercises into the, as content for them to embody and then share as a cool movement or a cool skill, instead to, let's say, look at uh, the content and the principles, which are, if it's a principle, then it exists everywhere in every craft and every form and every artistic insight. Um, and then to incorporate that into their own craft and artistic practice. It, of course, you know, uh, within education theory, you're looking at understanding the form to break the form. You're looking at learning the scales to, to break the scales. You can't, you know, people look at jazz music and like, oh, I could do that, blah, blah, blah. It's, if it's not by choice, it's, it's not by, if it's not by design, you understand what I'm saying? If you're not choosing to go against the, the rhythm, or if you're not choosing to break the key, then you're, you're just operating off of habit rather than choice. Choice is the mark of a craftsperson. They're making decisions, right? They're making decisions about how to mold the wood. They're making decisions about how to move their body. They're making decisions about how to sing, sing the note. And subconsciously, we understand the difference between habit and choice. If you're watching people perform, you understand when it's their habit and when they're choosing. So if you're watching a really great dancer improvising and you see them they're moving fast, fast, oh, slow, slow, fast, 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 slow. But if they're just moving fast and they always move fast and you see them perform, maybe they're moving so fast that you're really impressed. And then you go to see them next year, same company, different production, they're moving fast again. You go, I saw this, I saw them do this. No choice, just habit. Your habits can be amazing, but it's still habit. But when you see the same person embody something else, embody variety, embody texture, embody different qualities. What you're seeing is someone choosing how to manifest themselves in space or in art. And this subconsciously brings joy where we go, oh my God, why is that so great? Or why is that so funny? It's, it's really present in physical comedy. People are choosing to, to move in certain ways 
people are choosing to walk in certain ways so when they walk like that when they don't etc it's really present in, in craft in general so um so the sort of point that we were touching on it i really believe that um in order to facilitate individual artists and let's say we're working from an artistic perspective or even if we're working from an athletic perspective where as a collective we're more interested in cultivating athletic individuals we're more into, interested in creating you know let's say we're working with a, a footballer or a soccer player i guess you guys would say we're more interested in looking at what it is that makes them unique helping them to to use that as the basis on which to build their practice and their craft rather than trying to chew them out into a a, a, a clone a right. repetition and the people will look at them and, oh you trained at la masia oh you trained with manchester united of course you can have styles of teams and if you're part of a whole then you will have to sacrifice that individuality but the joy and the really great people that we love within sports within art within culture are those individuals messi right. usain bolt you know people who who are so themselves that the norm or the expectation uh, within their field changes based on their individuality. Every sprinter was, you know, five foot nine. Uh, Usain Bolt came along and suddenly like, hmm, maybe that norm needed to be challenged. And now we see the way that they're recruiting sprinters and they're looking for people with, with a more similar build where they're slightly taller and good weight in the lower body. So his individuality changed, this, changed the sport. Maybe we'll get really short basketball players. Yeah. Well, you're 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 talking a lot about the, the, the some of the terms I use are like the things like intelligence and creativity, right? And and we we kind of often step away from feeding those things to kind of jump into at least we're, let's talk about athletics. We come into like feeding these like linear systems. Like we you know we look at how to like well how do we scale a soccer player. Well, these are the qualities that are like the scale kind of McDonald's things that go into like the ingredients as opposed to like, well, how do we broadly feed all of the intelligence that goes into this athleticism or, or athleticism in general? Right. And if you're a statistician, mm -hmm. you're going to look at what's successful and you're going to try and find it. Right. And that we see that feed into sports and athletics. Now, at what point does that become limiting to the evolution of the sport in general? Let's say if I'm looking, if I'm the, the recruitment scout for Barcelona and they play a particular, let's say it's 2000s under Pep Guardiola, they played a style of football, which was called tiki-taka, which is based around short passes, uh, creating triangles in the space, short passes to move the, the shift up the pitch and then having uh, freedom as soon as they meet the final third of the pitch uh, for players to break the position to make runs in order to be fed to score goals. Most of the players were five foot eight, fit a similar sort of weight profile, not particularly strong, not particularly phys physical, very skilled on the ball. So then what they're doing is they're screening from a young age, they're screening from a young age, looking for uh, people who are going to fit that profile. And all the players who don't fit that profile move to the side. And so then what they do is they end up with many players in exactly the same way and their game stays the same. But at some point, other teams find a way to play against that style. And what happened in, in 
football and soccer was that teams started using this Gengen pressing style from Germany. Jurgen Klopp developed it, which is uh, very, very athletic, fast players pressing, so like challenging, moving towards the player with the ball as fast as they can, and the other players adjusting accordingly all around. So what happened was the game evolved based on a different profile, different athletic profile. And now scouts are again profiling pl young players, 12, 13 years old, even younger. Okay, how fast are they going to be? How strong are they going to be? And that's what they're looking for. It will continue to change. It will continue to change as time goes on. What is good about, um, sport, let's say, team sports is that you're playing against each other, right? So one team develops one style. Other teams will develop a style that can counter that style. So in team sports, it's not an issue. We'll get this evolution of style. But in individual sports, such as athletics, we don't have that. We don't have that evolution. We have it building upon itself. So if we look at sprinting, people aren't looking to develop a style to make Usain Bolt slower because you can't affect his performance. We're just looking to improve the individual performance. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Outside of those boxes, even though statistically, you won't, let, let's say, get as much repetition success, means that you can also contribute to the evolution of a sport. You can contribute to, let's say, the, the variety and, and the, the, um, the, the culture of a sport. And for me, that's what's really important as an artist is that we don't view these things just as statistics, but we also view them as things which, where we can get some of the diversity of culture and flavor of humanity within the sport and it doesn't just become you know it's happened in the past with like gymnastics like we don't just get repetition of chinese and russian style gymnastics all over the world that we can get different uh, approaches that potentially can still bring the same high level outcomes right well and then that comes so much from and that's why i think we hear these stories about like in in any sport people who are like unorthodox whether in their build or in whatever because they enter in and turn everybody upside down because of their unorthodox nature. They go against like the the norm. Right. And what's unfortunate is that it, instead of getting people excited about creativity and innovation and, and it being a broad principle in the sport, people then try to replicate that unorthodox thing and make that like a new cookie cutter that they try to move forward with and be like, no, 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 no that was an original, you should take it as the inspiration to let originality and, and, and creativity seep in. Right. And, you know, in the same way that we mentioned, like the foundations are still very important. It has to be choice. It has to be that you're using your style, having experienced other styles, right? Having experienced the training that's necessary to get you to that level within the sport or the craft. However, the individuality is what's key. So replicating someone else's individuality won't necessarily re replicate the success. I think it's really normal part of human process to imitate. I think it's really normal. It's how we learn. It's how we evolve to learn is by imitating people. As children, we have this instinct to play and to imitate. And what do we call it? Monkeying around, like where you, where you really imitate um, sounds. That's how we learn to speak. Actions, that's how we learn to move. It's a huge part of it. And I think in the development of high level craft or just like interesting craft and who cares who it's interesting for, if it's interesting for you, then that's enough. Um, but I think within that, we need to go through these periods or it's very normal to go through these periods of imitation 
you know, I'm, I'm, I, I play guitar quite a lot at the moment. I find it as a really inspiring way to pass time. And I find myself playing in the style of people that I admire. I'm at that point in my development where I'm learning more by learning, copying, mimicking, trying what other people have done. And eventually I will have to come to the point where I say, now I'm gonna find my style, which will be influenced by all those different styles. It'll be influenced by all those different, so there might be a bit of like John, John Martin thumb slaps in there. There might be a little bit of um, Travis picking, riffing on the, uh, in the bass. The influence will still stay there, it will exist in the, in the blueprint, but what we end up with, it will be uniquely me. That part of the process is sometimes getting forgotten about. And what we sometimes get for the, in the, this rush, this rush within our society to, um, to output immediately, to share what we're doing all the time, every day, um, because of social media, uh, is that we sometimes skip that last step and we're just sharing replication of, of other people's um, styles or our interpretation is still unique, it's still ours, but maybe we haven't had enough time to digest it um, and to translate it into our own uh, interpretation. Maybe it's still a representation of, of um of something that we we have experienced from outside to in. I often think too that it's a little bit of it's a little bit of fear, right? It's like you look at something that's been successful, been proven, it gets like the the validation or the the positive attention and you're like, "Well, I'm just going to shoot for that." Not realizing that like, you know, that thing that you might do past that when when your special sauce is is part of all the culmination of experiences and and skills and techniques and you know life right that might be the more magical thing yeah i really think so and and you know it's also something which for me i'd say something to for people to be aware of if they're looking to really develop their own voice is to really try and find variety in exposure so of course we've grown up well there's different cultures there's different norms but um within a lot of lineage crafts there's been this idea that you have one teacher and you just train with that one teacher um, and you follow them and then eventually after 20 30 years you you then break away to form your own school or you inherit the school and you continue with the same whatever um what we'll see let's say within uh, a lot of academic institutions where um, there's been a complex dissemination of these approaches over the last century, as we look to really give the, not only the most beneficial, but also um, look at places, spaces where there's opportunity for, let's say the, the, the nature of humans to try and keep things for themselves, try and keep power, try and keep reputation or try and keep all these things. You know, you have a student that's doing well, you want them just to train in your way or just in your style. Um, but actually, we see that this is very, very limiting. Um, and so if you look at, let's say, within a dance school, a dance institution, you'll be working with different teachers every half term. So you get six weeks with this teacher, six weeks. You still go very deep within their methodology. But what you're getting is the variety. And so what then you end up with is a lot more ingredients put into the mixer and less of a very common desire to 
imitate the people that you respect or it's 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 gone through such a process that it's that it's, you don't have a chance to get too attached you don't have a chance to get too um, too married to one one way of thinking or moving or or painting whatever it is whatever it is so i think that's really important to also to remember you know the, the institutions are set up in a, in a way for a reason and it might not give maximum results in the short time but what it does do is potentially create a diverse community of uh, of artists within whatever field and it might not, might not might not be art it might also be philosophy it might be psychology it might be physiology whatever but what it does is it means that we get the, uh, a diverse set of views and more individuality and this is key well and also when you have students that are walking in the door that are all bringing their different experiences and backgrounds from all the things that they've done and the, the teachers they've gone to and then come back to to play with you then it's a welcoming of like well we're all learning even the facilitator right right which yeah, is. yeah, I really believe in this. And, you know, you know, I think that there, there can be a little bit of a culture of followers, people following mm -hmm. certain teachers, and it plays a little bit into the sort of cult of individuality. We find people who are charismatic. When we're around them, we feel good. We like what they say. Um, it's an environment in which we really enjoy practicing and being curious. And what that teacher's done is facilitated an environment where you can, where you're sincerely learning but you don't need them to create that environment. And there are other places on the planet where other people create that environment. And it's hopefully a collective thing so that you start to see, oh, wow, I can create this environment with my friends. I can create this environment in the classes that I run for these, um, you know, these, uh, these yoga classes or these, uh, let's say you're working in physiotherapy in, in this class I run with people with Alzheimer's. I can create the same environment that creates the same good feeling um, without, let's say, the, the, the attachment uh, to being limited by one way, one approach. Um, and it's tough because the one way, one approach is often the fastest to give you results. It really is. And, it, and it, again, it feeds into what we were speaking about earlier about beliefs. It's you have the answer. You don't want to say, hey, look, here's the answer to solve your problem and then go and speak to someone else. And, and they say, no, no, that's not the answer. This is the answer. But that's if you're just looking for an answer that will help you to, to feel like you've done it, you've ticked the box. But if you're looking for complexity, if you're looking for perspective, if you're looking for the capacity to, to be a mediator in, this, in your perception of life on earth, and by that I mean the capacity to see things from different perspectives simultaneously, to be able to, to navigate through life with that level of flexibility, of psychological flexibility, that for me is a real skill. And that requires uh, not uh, diminishing the process of, of learning a, a method or, or a, a vocabulary or a curriculum. I mean, still commit yourself to it, learn what you can learn, take away what you can take away, but then also exposing yourself to contradicting ones or, or slightly different ones or and um, you know talking the, the having the difficult conversations that challenge the thing that you've spent 10 years working on and that's always it's always tough but um like i i have found from my past experiences of of being limited to a teacher or allowing myself to limit myself to a teacher for a long time i found my curiosity diminished 
because I was dependent on someone else's curiosity. And, right. and you know, you can find yourself validating other things based on how they validate it. But this mm-hmm. isn't duality. This isn't, this is, um, you know, putting yourself in function of another thing. Now, if you're putting yourself in function of a community or a group of people, and there's a, a horizontal hierarchy, then that can be really wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. You're conversing about things. You're like, okay, well, what do we, what do you think about that? What do you think? Well, I think this, your voice has equal resonance. But if, if the community in which you're uh, disseminating these things is set up in a pyramidal structure, then this is essentially the cult of personality. And what you end up doing is losing individuality. Now, maybe that, that's something that people want to expose themselves to for a time. I certainly enjoy training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I enjoy the hierarchical structure of traditional Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with regards to the teacher, with regards to the belts, with regards to how we line up, how we bow, how we talk to, how we greet the, the, the professor when we start. I enjoy the hierarchical structure of that, but it's something which is uniform across this culture and community of jujitsu, and it's been around for a long time. So it's relatively, when there's bad practice, it's relatively well established. You can speak to people from other schools and be like, well, this happened. And they'll be like, "Mm, yeah, we don't really do. I've had experience, and we've all had experience in jujitsu. Maybe someone comes in with a slightly different level of aggression or way of speaking to people. I remember um, a guy that slammed someone really hard. And and one of our more experienced guys, one of of our black belts just went over and said, we don't do that here. No, it's holding to account based on this collective communal sense of ethics. I think it's really important. Um, but what we see is that jujitsu is not based on an individual's um, perception of the world. It's based on a communal perception. It might have originated in one, one person or one family's views, yeah. but it's had time to filter down. And what it loses is that any, any level of dogma that exists. Right. Uh, there's, like a, there's a collective mind at work as opposed to a single mind that's kind of handing right. it down. Right. And, you know, I think the movement... Uh, community is in the process of disseminating this, disseminating this and going through the process that institutions have already been through over the last thousand years and uh, schooling has been through and uh, <laughs> it's a process which will take its time because this idea of movement community is a new thing and people are really finding their feet and often I mean you know to be direct about it maybe don't realize that a lot of the work and a lot of these speculations have already happened. You just need to know where to look. Yeah. And of course, what we're doing is maybe putting them under one umbrella, but, but we also need to understand that there's people who are really experts in a lot of these fields who are very easy to reach. We just need to, to have the courage to reach out to them and say, we're interested in learning about this rather than let's say relying on people who are maybe taking little bits from here and there and which is useful, which is great, but um, we really want to also look to, if we want to understand evolutionary physiology, where's our evolutionary physiologist? If we want to understand biomechanics, where's our biomechanist? If we want to understand. And then of course, within that, there'll be space for like, great, okay, so um, we want to go to this space to train with this group because these people create a really great, fun environment to to train and we want to go hang out with these guys because they create a really great, fun environment. Um, But this, 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 uh, this solution of um, 
of let's say a unitary approach trying to find more communal approaches really important more horizontal hierarchical structures really really important i think i think if you're looking at building a community you need to have people there from different backgrounds different um different approaches and you need to have <laughs> democracy yeah in that structure so that it doesn't just come down to one person saying it should be like this or we or that person that person's views are valid that person's views are not valid that's where ethically it can become a little bit a little bit uh, problematic in my view and is this the inspiration for the the collective that you're a part of yeah absolutely so you know i um i started teaching very young i was in my mid-20s and uh got a lot of attention very fast and two it was at a point in social media where things really were blowing up and we had some really great videos that we made of us training and they just exploded uh, it was the right thing at the right time that people wanted to see and like like that suddenly we had all this interest now i believe that the content of what we were sharing matched the level of exposure that we had i sincerely believed that however i wanted to make sure of that so that we had a really good foundation of which to say this is our place to say these things because young guy mid-20s just ride catching the wave suddenly elevated to levels when there's people who've been working for 20 30 years you know uh you can ride that wave but you're going to leave a lot of people uh, feeling a little bit um maybe with some negative feelings about it and i definitely you know i definitely noticed that but my approach is to just be honest with that and vulnerable with that and say yeah okay uh, that makes sense i took a step back and now i'm coming back to sharing the same principles um with a team of people where it's really structured in a way which is uh, as much as i can while still being very protective of my sort of baby of this this uh, practice and this uh, let's say movement philosophy that is spherus anime terranova um but trying to create this really horizontal um hierarchy where and also where we really defer to expertise we really defer to expertise we invite different teachers to come in and and share their perspectives and we really look to creating platforms for people who are underrepresented and who are just the top of their field um even if it's a really niche field instead of like taking a sound bite of their research and putting it in with the things that we share it's better we think to say we're going to do a talk this week on this thing with this great speaker yeah. and that way we can sort of offer as many platforms as we can and we can get that variety of approaches which cultivates complexity rather than complicated this complexity in the community which we really really want to try and cultivate right and it inspires interaction and conversation and discourse as opposed to you know kind of uh i don't know submitting or giving up those ideas to another mind right and you know we just focus on the positive it, it mm -hmm. promotes all of those it promotes discourse it promotes complexity it promotes questioning breaking down of of uh of maybe long held beliefs and uh, potentially and this is what we really try to keep as the one of the key sort of foundations of it shares a lot of joy and i think there's a lot of um, a lot of aspects of humanity which can scratch at the joy to try and like bring it into power dynamics and uh you know we feel all these different territorial things that we spoke about earlier uh, we try to 
we're trying to create a setup, a structure and a foundation where those things are just irrelevant. And it means everyone having to go through the process of trying to really dissolve their own sense of importance. Mm -hmm. And that can only happen if us guys, you know, there's a team of about six of us, I think, who are in that sort of organizational roles at the moment. And that has to start with us. It has to start with us saying, there's a lot we don't know. We make mistakes, we're human, we're vulnerable, um, and we're open to hearing feedback. We're open to being wrong. We're open to uh, being challenged. And we're open to also holding space for people who know better or people who think differently. Um, and that holding space is maybe the most challenging part because you think, oh, they think that, that contradicts what I think, fuck. Mm -hmm. But it's important. We really believe it's important. Man, I really admire all of that. I think that, you know, everything from joy and humility are things that I think are often lost in in the seriousness and, and often dogmatic approaches of all things, but definitely in the world of movement. Um, so yeah, those are really special qualities that I think um, people could, uh, could all benefit from spending a lot of time just like investigating and, and being a little more open to. Yeah. And, you know, for us, I think a really key part of that is also looking at areas of society where these principles or these, this approach to life, this kind of approach to life that um, prioritizes our body's capacity to move and interact with its environment, to look to areas of society where this is most needed. Because the young, active people, we don't need it. You know, we'll be okay without it. It's great. And it, for some of us do need it. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of people I know who has really saved their lives. I say that completely sincerely saved their lives. But there's so many areas of society where this, um, this approach, this philosophy, these, these outlooks can be so beneficial, really, really beneficial. Whether that's demographics with regards to ages, whether that's people with certain conditions. And I really, really encourage um, people to think about, think about that, you know, I found myself so many times saying at workshops, maybe this information isn't useful for you, but it might be useful to your parents or your grandparents. So feel free to tell them when we're speaking about um, neuro neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's and things like that. It's ways to avoid. So this might not be relevant for you right now, but it might be relevant to people who maybe are a little bit more in need or it might be more pressing for them. So feel free to share the information with those people because it's not just about doing tricks. It's not just about moving in a nice way. It's also about potentially in the future, we're talking about public health. We're talking about making wide, wide, uh, wide scale changes to society to facilitate better public health based on these thoughts, these uh, ideas, these inspirations, these, these philosophies. It, it has to start somewhere. So if we have a vision of the future, which in which movement, in which, um, skillful interaction with complex environments is paramount where does that start from it doesn't start with the politicians we know that they're not moving yeah. <laughs> and on that point one thing i would really also encourage is often we'll see in the past we've seen a lot of people with a very good academic understanding of of movement with regards to physiology biomechanics psychology etc but a very poor embodied understanding 
and people with a very good embodied understanding, but a, but a very poor academic understanding. So by that, I mean like in the past, dancers or sports people haven't typically been known for having a great academic understanding of physiology and anatomy. And even though their craft means that they're in a really good place to understand it from a mm -hmm. complex perspective. And at the same time, people who understand health, science, scientists, people working in medicine, um, aren't always the most embodied. Right. What we really, really encourage is that people to, to try and develop both simultaneously. So for me, I trained as a dancer and now I'm in the process of doing my master's, hopefully PhD, um, to try and really marry the amount of hours I spent on understanding movement from a, a mover perspective and also from an academic perspective. Again, we get that choice. So it's to encourage people to say, listen, don't be scared because so many people are scared. The movers are all scared of the academics. The academics are all scared of the movers, right? Mm -hmm. It's an oversimplification, but I think there's some truth in it. To encourage people not to be scared and to realize that their expertise actually offers them a really fantastic platform to understand the other side. And the more people who have that have foundation in both, the more, uh, the more we can sort of start to potentially spread the seeds of benefit where they exist. And I say that with humility of, you know, we're just speculating where benefit might exist. We're not saying this is good for everyone. And that would be naive. But hopefully if there is benefit, that it's there for people. The people who want, who, that someone has a diagnosis of Parkinson's and they, as part of their pack, there's a flyer saying movement for Parkinson's class, Wednesday night, seven o'clock. And we can see the scientific benefit being tested in the field by people who have that interest. You know, I'm studying in dance science and it's such a new field. Sports science, relatively established, still very new. Dance science, even though you're working with huge institutions, historic institutions, the Royal Ballet, et cetera. But dance science papers, I mean, there's very, very few. There's very, very little literature and research out there. So yeah, I got, to, I got to speak to a guy who teaches, he runs the martial arts program at UCLA and he has been studying Kali for a long time. And he got connected to the dance department. The dance part department wanted to connect him to the neuroscience department. So they did some just, you know, research on going through learning new patterns, learning Kali. And, you know, he spoke about the benefits of this. So I reached out and we had him on the podcast, but kind of, as you said, I think he reflected on it being like, this is stuff that isn't, it, it hasn't gotten a lot of time there yet. Right. And we, you know, we need that cross-pollination uh, and part of that cross-pollination is having people to translate because mm -hmm. if you get a neuroscientist stereotypical neuroscientist and a stereotypical dancer in a room they don't speak the same language right so we need people to be working to be dipping their toes across those lines to be able to facilitate those spaces to be able to facilitate those meetings saying listen i want you to meet this person i'll be there too you meet up and then you can interpret you can translate as though they're speaking two languages but most importantly, you can help them to realize that actually they speak the same language. There's two things are based on the same principles. There might be different terminology, but they're speaking the same language. Once you break that barrier, then, you know, it's happening now. You start to get neuroscientists working with choreographers, working with doctors and public health. And we can see any potential benefit that exists for humanity being shared on a, in a, wide, a wider, um, wider space. 
mm. in the past, sometimes the benefit that's been found has been limited to particular fields. And that's crazy. It happens so much. Really, really simple things, really simple things. Uh, a friend of mine shared a paper with me um, about a week ago with regards to um, some specific uh, techniques for contraception based around understanding uh, individually a woman's menstrual cycle, right? Um, and they found that its efficacy based on a, a sample of 20,000 women, so very, very high uh, uh, sample number, um, its efficacy was better than the use of the contraceptive pill, right? So what you have is if you're working with individuals, you can help them to understand their menstrual rhythm and that the efficacy of it as a contraceptive was higher than the use of the contraceptive pill. And we understand with the contraceptive pill, there's many drawbacks and, and potential side effects, right? So you have a really well-validated, well-respected paper that's offering an, an alternative that doesn't make anyone rich, but the, the science is really clear, right? And that came out in 2005. And here we are 15 years later and no, one, no one's heard about the research, even though they've been fighting tooth and nail to get this research out there. And this is just a, as a disclaimer, um, this is separate to sort of apps which help you to measure your cycle based around an expected um, 30, 28 or 32 day cycle. It's really based around working with an individual because we see the variety in the amount of days in a cycle is actually much wider than that. But it's saying that if you work with individuals, which is of course more expensive than just chucking out a one size fits all hormonal, hormone altering uh, tablet. Mm -hmm. But the research has been there for such a long time. And it's only been utilized in really small fields, really, really small fields. So if, for example, which is what's happening now, the friend that I spoke to is a former dancer who is training in, uh, in public health with regards to contraception. So she suddenly has this whole network of people that she can share the information with, and it just starts to disseminate out into different areas of society. And then the benefit can potentially spread to different areas of society. The more often we are brave enough to dip our toes into other areas to have this sort of portfolio career, they call it in business, this like open-mindedness to, to not defining ourselves within one area or within one field, we can really start to share the benefits that we find um, from different areas. I think it's super important. I think sometimes that there can almost feel like that fear comes a lot from, I don't know, obviously there's like a cultural like stigmatization of like failure, which is probably associated with not knowing, but, you know, in some of these fields, like it can almost feel elitist in some ways where it's almost like to come in and, and be curious and not knowing almost feels like you're it almost feels unwelcoming. So I'm, you know, I, I wonder to myself, how do we make these places that are the really deep dives feel like welcomed deep dives? Like, oh, you don't know? Come on in. Just come on in. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, God, it would just be great. It's really the responsibility of people who are, who are finding their way mm -hmm. within a certain field. Mm -hmm. I believe if you understand something, you can explain it to a child. I think Einstein said that, right? He said, if you really understand something, if you really truly understand something in all its complexity, you can explain it to a child. So, you know, if you don't have the patience to explain to an adult who's probably much more intelligent than you give them credit for, uh, if you don't have the patience or the capacity to explain it to them, then what are you in that field for? What are you fighting for? 
if you're not in that field to fight for the the, the spreading and dissemination of, of that information, if you're trying to keep it for some reason, then probably it reflects back to what we were speaking about earlier. You're there in service of yourself only, rather than there in service of maybe a collective progression of, of a species or community or society. Um, that's 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 okay. I can't I can't judge people if that's their outlook. That's okay. It is what it is. It's not my outlook. Or I try to be aware of times when I feel more protective of information or feel more territorial or feel like oh I, I taught that exercise yesterday now that person's teaching it mm. you know I, i've been through that and come out the other side in my view and it's just my view other people might disagree and they might say i'm privileged to be able to have this view fair enough i agree uh, but my view is it's just information it's just share it get it out there let it exist in the in the interconnection not in individuals don't keep it. Let it exist in communication between people. Um, don't be too protective of it. It's nice to be recognized, but I would rather be recognized as being calm, open, and, and having humility uh, than, than for being excellent at um, innovating this one thing or this one specific. It's, it, is, it's, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter. So, so trying to act like that also maybe encourages young people coming through to be less protective in the same way. And I understand it's a pri- privileged uh, outlet, um, but, I, but I truly believe in it. So I stand by it completely steadfast. Share the information, share what you find in your field if it's beneficial. Don't charge people for it. <laughs> you know, support yourself, support your family, make a living, share information for what it's worth. But um, if you're just trying to get if you're there to get rich, then I mean, that's a shame. I don't, and I don't think you'll find what you're looking for. It's, it's, the, it's <laughs> the sad truth of it. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm curious if, if people are interested in, in the work you're doing and the research that you and your collective are doing and the, the approaches you guys are taking and everything, education, workshops, like wh- how, how do people become a part of that or connect with it or, or, or absorb some of the, the things you guys are putting out there? Um, yeah, you know, so Ferris Anime Terra Nova is the collective. We do, in the past, we've run quite a, um, a, quite a large workshop program and we enjoy traveling and teaching in different places. And we'll see how it pans out with the pandemic. We're trying not to be too active online um, just sort of waiting for the right time, the right moment. You know, we also enjoy keeping a bit of mystery about our work because <laughs> we don't need uh, even 1,000. We, we believe that, that the more sin- sin- sincere change is easier to facilitate through uh, sincere interaction with less individuals that then they can go on and have sincere inter- interaction with the individuals around them rather than a smaller or less deep uh, interaction with more individuals um anyone who's interested in training with us based on anything that they've seen or heard or good things or bad things whatever um i'm sure that they'll find us wherever we will be <laughs> i like that i like that i like that who knows Maybe i like that we might spend a bit of time in prague uh, at the end of this year but you know the, the the other thing is that at the moment we're really focused on um working in institutions 
because mm -hmm. we really believe in the safeguarding and the setup of institutions. So whether that's in dance institutions, theater institutions, um, you know, we're working in the, with elements of performance psychology and movement technique. Um, at the moment, during the pandemic, we're really just mainly working in, in that sphere. Um, so none of that is sadly public, but we'll be looking to find ways also to make make the work and the research. And also, the, let's say, share the environment that we believe in so sincerely uh, soon. Because for, for me, that's like the key part of it. It's just the joyfulness of getting together with people, um, you know, and sharing a joy and a love of, um, of interaction, communication, artistry, craft movement yeah well i'm gonna keep my eyes open <laughs> super wide um i have a vision of uh finding my way over to europe at some point as things in the pandemic you know become cooler calmer more you know whatever it looks like on the other side so yeah. um you know i uh, i hope i cross paths with you with you over there yeah i mean listen you have my contact, so feel free. Um, and you know, we'll, if we do start to organize stuff, it will be it will be in the ether. It will be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, just keep an eye out. 